Burning Books with Eric Beck Rubin. Hello, and welcome to episode 19 of the Burning Books podcast, where we discuss, celebrate, and explore great books, very good books, books in which there's something to appreciate or admire, as well as books that are the opposite of all those things. Today, we're going outside the norm, way outside the norm. Not only are we looking at a work of nonfiction, it's a book about science, math, and particle physics. I can't say this material is 100% foreign to me, just 99 to the square root of minus 1% foreign, which, exactly. The book is the excellent Truth or Beauty, published in 2012, and we're going to look at it alongside the author, David Oral. Truth or Beauty looks at a particular proclivity of the scientific mindset, an interest in aesthetics, that, according to the author, has existed since the beginnings of recorded history. It then traces this proclivity to the present world of scientific endeavor, from string theory to CERN and beyond. If the word proclivity rings of perversion, you're not on the wrong track. In the present time, we have a certain view of the world of science and scientists, and the concerns of aesthetics don't fit into that view. The author, however, corrects us right off the bat. In this book, I will argue the scientific quest for beauty has motivated generations of scientists. So let's go back to that beginning. Ancient Greece, Pythagoras. I asked David Orrell to tell us more about the roots of scientific notions of beauty, and this is what he said. Where the aesthetic really seems to come from is some very old principles that can date back to the ancient Greeks, the time of Pythagoras. And um, the Pythagoreans believed that the universe was made up of number, you know, it was kind of like the stuff of the universe. And so perhaps the most profound discovery of the Pythagoreans was that uh, music is based on number because notes which harmonize well together are related by simple uh, mathematical ratios, you know. So if you have like a length of a guitar string and you, you pluck it, you get one note. And then if you fret it exactly halfway up and pluck it, you get a note which is an, an octave higher and therefore harmonizes. And then the other notes are, are related by relationships of like one to three or three to five or th- this kind of thing. Um, and, and so there was this agreement between music, which was sort of considered, you know, the most expressive and mysterious of art forms and this uh, very rational mathematics. And so you, you had this idea coming that the universe was based on number, but it was also based on this kind of mathematical beauty, something that could be expressed in a simple way using numbers. And from that basis, you, you sort of end up with some aesthetic principles which relate to number. So one, for example, is the idea of symmetry. The Pythagoreans, for them, the most perfect shape was a circle because it's perfectly symmetric. And, and uh, the nice thing about a circle is you can describe it by only one number, the diameter. You know, other shapes, if you have a more complicated shape, you need lots of numbers. But with a, a circle, you can just say one number, the diameter, and that's it. Um, other things are the idea of unity, that y- you find one principle which sort of underlines lots of different phenomena, you know, and this is like a very powerful thing. And then the, the idea of elegance, when you write something out in, in a very compact way. The archetypal example of this from Isaac Newton, who was a great Pythagorean, you know, and, and when he discovered his law of gravity, this was like the great realization of the Pythagorean dream in a way, because he showed that all of these different phenomena from the falling apple to the arc of the moon uh, through the sky could be described through this very, very simple equation. So, symmetry unity, simplicity, 
all of which combine to form elegance, these are at the core of the scientist's notion of beauty. It's not for nothing that Brian Greene called his book on string theory the elegant universe. This is the height of praise, or in this case, self-praise. But as the opening chapters of Truth or Beauty show us, elegance is more than a description of a theory's appearance. Elegance, to the minds of these scientists, is how the universe has ordered itself from top to bottom. It might seem that mathematical theories or experiments on subatomic particles have little impact on our lives. But what is certainly true is that the scientific aesthetic of elegance, which informs and motivates those theories and experiments, has played a huge role in shaping our mental and material worlds. Okay, the question then is, how does the scientific aesthetic, which favors symmetry, unity, and simplicity, shape our mental and material worlds? Worlds that, at least to this layperson's eye, do not naturally express themselves in the cool and clean language of elegance. And while we're at it, what happens, as in this case, when a material and a language used to describe that material are at odds? Does one come out on top? And if so, what does that mean for the one that doesn't? One thing we might do to begin answering these questions is return to Pythagoras. His assertion was that the universe is ordered and rational, that it was made of numbers, and that numbers were therefore the appropriate way to describe it. Discovering the universe, a Pythagorean would say, is merely a route to discovering the numbers that govern every part of that universe. In this view, numbers are not a language created by human beings like English or Romanche. Rather, numbers were given to us by nature. Now, it's one thing for the Greeks to take this view. It's another for us in the modern period to hold on to it still. I asked David Orwell why this idea that numbers are inherent to our universe has persisted among scientists. I think that goes sort of to the heart of the thing, really, because there are two schools of thought on this, right? When, you know, one is that we invented numbers, and the other is that numbers are these things which have always been there. I mean, the Pythagorean approach would be to say that the universe was made of numbers, you know, and, and we, we've just sort of discovering them. And by understanding them, we understand the secret of the universe. I think for a lot of physicists, it's almost like a sort of a quasi-religious thing, right? Because it's a sort of a belief in the system that you, I mean, you can't actually go out and prove it, but it's, it's something that you believe in very strongly because it kind of resonates with your ideas about the universe. I think part, part of the story, part of the reason why areas such as physics tend to be kind of dominated by this idea that numbers have an eternal external reality is that there's kind of a strange thing about the world, I guess, is that there are many things which are very well described by abstract mathematical equations. And like Newton pointed this out, you know, he said it's kind of remarkable how, you know, he could go and look at things like gravity and optics and different areas of science and apply his uh, calculus, his, the mathematics that he was inventing, and it worked in all these things. I mean, it didn't have to. It could have been that, you know, he showed that uh, the gravitational force decreases with the, the distance squared. So if you go two feet away, you get one, one strength of gravity, and if you go double that to four feet, it, it drops off by the distance squared. Who says it has to be that? It could have been something much more complicated, much less elegant, right? And so all of this feeds the idea that the universe is actually profoundly mathematical. That square is not an accident. It's kind of built into the whole system. The result of all this is that numbers have come to be considered the only true way of describing the world. They are our only dependable bearers of facts. 
Only they, in their objectivity and purity, can be perfect. And by using numbers and speaking in the language of mathematics, we human beings take part in that perfection. Moving ahead in time, the story remains the same. A conjunction of numbers, mathematics, and reason is seen as self-evident. One equals the other equals the other. 75 years after Pythagoras, Plato echoed his theories in the dialogue Timaeus, which describes the cosmos as perfect, unified, and composed according to ratios, that is to say, numbers. 800 years on, at the fall of the Roman Empire, Augustine wrote, Reason in man is rather like God in the world, an expression that casts godliness as the highest form of human reason, and therefore linked man to the divine through abstract logic. When, in the 12th century, the abbot Suget inaugurated the medieval period through the construction of Saint-Denis outside Paris, he used the numerology of Neoplatonism to lay out his plans for the cathedral. Three portals for the Holy Trinity, twelve columns for the apostles, are creation linked to the divine order through numbers. The memory theaters of the Renaissance, which were as much about creating the world as memorizing it, leaned heavily on astrology, the one that was ordered by mathematics as a means of organizing their contents, all of which is the subject of a fantastic book called The Art of Memory by Francis Yates. Getting back to truth or beauty, though, Orel demonstrates that one of the great appeals of Copernicus's heliocentric universe was not that it was proven correct during its time, but that it was more elegant than the previous geocentric model, which relied on all kinds of exceptions. And as we heard earlier, Newton's theory of gravity found immediate and widespread support, in large part because it was self-evidently simple, unified, harmonious, and therefore elegant. I can hear you thinking, but surely that's all past. Newton lived in, what, the 18th century? Well, the 17th and 18th, but yes. And the quasi-mystical belief in numerology, a belief that individual numbers had special powers, in which Newton himself indulged, that died around the same time, right? That's true too. But what passed as proof in Newton's age remains a standard today. Elegance is still one of the great marks that a theory must achieve in order to be regarded as true. In its descriptions of the origins of modern particle physics, that would be particle physics not as practiced by Lucretius, truth or beauty returns frequently to the Copenhagen interpretation of 1927. This is when Heisenberg proclaimed, or self-proclaimed, the triumph of quantum mechanics. What's of interest to the reader is one of the proofs that Heisenberg gives for his reordering of the subatomic world. The elementary particles have the form Plato ascribed to them because it is the mathematically most beautiful form. Therefore, the ultimate root of phenomena is not matter, but instead mathematical law, symmetry, and mathematical form. And in case you didn't catch that, the world is the way we think it is because the way we think it is makes it beautiful. Signed, Heisenberg. Now, when Einstein refutes aspects of the Copenhagen interpretation, it is not on the basis of a mathematical rebuttal, but an objection to quantum physics' declaration of a mutable universe. Perfect systems, as Einstein put it, don't change. Hang on, did I miss something? Who said the universe is a perfect system? Well, nobody. But neither was the question ever asked. The answer was merely assumed. And nearly a century onwards, it still seems bonkers. Here you have a debate between two of the greatest scientific minds of the millennium, and it revolves around matters of perfection and beauty. At the same time, it's an ideal encapsulation of a world where scientists speak like C-3PO, but still think like Merlin. I asked Orel if he agreed with this assertion, 
And while he was diplomatic with his answer, he was miming the whole time that I was completely right. I think there are a couple of things. One is that I should point out that uh, this scientific idea of beauty is something that people talk about, not in scientific papers, right? So, you know, if you read a scientific paper, it will never say in the abstract that uh, we believe this theory is correct because it's beautiful. So, it, it, But it's, it's funny, people will say it off to the side, but then if you question them about it, it's not officially part of the sort of scientific thing. The, the official viewpoint would be that beauty doesn't matter, it's evidence that counts, and that's it. Uh, so there's, there's a sort of a bit of a tension there. The, the aim of the book is to argue that actually these comments should be taken at face value. They are the real drivers here, you know. Even if they're not in the papers, a lot of this work is being motivated by the desire for beauty. So, to recap. One, in all the centuries between ourselves and the Greeks, scientists have not developed their sense of what constitutes beauty beyond symmetry, unity, and simplicity. Two, those who study the creation of the universe believe that the universe, which human beings did not create, is based on a formula of beauty that human beings self-evidently created. At the risk of repeating myself, the solipsism of this point of view is baffling and is matched only by its hubris. We are centuries away from the geocentric model of the universe, but we've replaced it with a homo sapien-centric model, which seems, and I'm not a mathematician, approximately the square root of negative one times crazier. Speaking of crazy, let's talk string theory, or to give its full name, supersymmetric string theory. Yep, there's that word, symmetry, again. Truth or Beauty points out that there is a great deal of discussion around elegance when it comes to string theory, and that the central tenets of the theory can be regarded as beautiful in the traditional sense. The fundamental idea of string theory is derived from, who else? Pythagoras. It is a notion that the universe is not built of point particles, as we've generally been taught, but strings that vibrate in harmony with one another. These tiny strings vibrate in ten dimensions, ten being a recurring number in Pythagoras and, later, in the Roman period, when it denotes totality and completeness. So, all quite nice, but when it comes to the application of the theory, the mess comes out. It's important to distinguish the actual realization of the theory, which can be quite messy, and the kind of underlying ideas behind it which are inspired by beauty. So if you actually looked at a, some paper about string theory research, the equations would not jump out at you as being amazingly beautiful, right? Because it's sort of, I mean, it's, it's totally incomprehensible. I mean, even people who work in the area don't even know exactly, you know, where, where it's going or what it's doing. But the ideas behind it are very elegant and simple because, it's, it's, again, it's an idea that goes back to the Greeks. And it's, it's very elegant in the sense that you can explain absolutely everything. Because, I mean, you know, let's say that you go to the idea of unity, right? If you look at something like an electron and a proton, or a, any of the other particles, they don't really seem to have anything in common. Electrons are very light, protons are very heavy for a subatomic particle. Photons, which are the, the particle of light, don't weigh anything at all. They travel at the speed of light. You know, so there's no unity when you look at it like that, right? But if you can say that all of these things are actually manifestations of little wriggling strings, and the strings are all the same, right, then you can unify absolutely everything, and, and you can explain all the properties using this sort of elegant idea. So again, the implementation is very complicated, and that's, that's sort of a feature of these theories, which is that the, the more elegant you make the underlying idea, <laughs> the more complicated the actual implementation has to become in order to fit the reality. 
What Truth or Beauty reiterates with a variety of examples, each more cringeworthy than the previous, is that scientists seem little interested in the complexities of reality. Complexity, with its resistance to the formula of symmetry, unity, and simplicity, is somehow dirty or low, much like how the mess of our world pales before the order of the heavens. Listen, for instance, to the case that physicist Steven Weinberg makes for building the superconducting supercollider. This was a project eventually overtaken by CERN, the Large Hadron Collider near Geneva. There is reason to believe that in elementary particle physics, we are learning something about the logical structure of the universe at a very, very deep level. The reason I say this is that we have been going to higher and higher energies, and as we have been studying structures that are smaller and smaller, we have found that the laws, the physical principles, that describe what we learn become simpler and simpler. There is simplicity, a beauty, that we are finding in the rules that govern matter that mirror something that is built into the logical structure of the universe at a very deep level. What especially struck me while reading one scientist after another extolling the virtues of beauty is that while it's safe to assume that not one of these great minds would give any time to the notion of intelligent design, which is merely a cover for creationism, almost all believe in elegant design. And from where I sit, I can't see a difference between the two. With reference to the original question, how does the scientific aesthetic shape our world, it seems that it encourages a world already tending towards the abstract and the escapist to go leap off that cliff, all while mistakenly convincing itself that, by being rooted in science, it's actually looking at the real. So far, we've talked about the beauty of the title, the notion of a scientific aesthetic that, over time, has led science and its abundant authority and resources to pursue concerns that seem ever further from the world we actually occupy. As Orrell puts it in the book, studying the particles in a particle collider will only tell us how these particles behave in a particle collider, perhaps not much else. Rather than unlocking God's mind, as the scientists at CERN are always telling us they're doing, they may merely be discovering the shape of his fingernail, or her fingernail. What about that word truth, then? Knowing how the author regards beauty, how does he define truth? Well, one place he looks for an answer is in the so-called emergent properties of the natural world. I asked Orel to define the term emergent, and he spoke about it using an example from mathematics and computer science called the game of life. So say that you have a system of things which are interacting, they, they could be interacting in a very simple way, but they're interacting with one another. So sort of archetypal example of this was a computer game, which, which uh, people were playing around with in the 1970s and called the game of life. And what it was was, uh, uh, let's say you have on your computer screen a grid of black and white checkerboard. Okay, you make some simple little rules so that you clock through time and you say, well, if a square is black and it's adjacent to two other squares which are black, then I don't know, it stays black, but if there's three other squares which are black, then it turns white. Just very simple rules, right? So you write it out, you know, three or four lines, and that's it. And then you just kind of run this game. And if you do most rules, then like nothing happens. You know, the screen will turn all white or it'll turn all black or whatever. But if you just get the balance of the rules right, then what happens is the screen kind of comes alive and you start getting these, these shapes moving across it. And this thing, it was called the game of life because it appeared to be alive. You, you sort of get uh, recurrent shapes that would kind of move across it and people gave them names like gliders and, and so on and blinkers and, and things, you know, and it was really interesting. And, and th this is a, a, an example of a, an emergent property because the rules were very simple. So if, if you were 
uh, trying to predict what the system was going to do when you turned it on. There's no way that you could because there's just no information in these rules, right? There's no way that you could look at those things and say, oh, yeah, we're going to get gliders or, you know, complex life-form-looking shapes coming out of this because it looks exactly like all the other rules, which did nothing. So that's sort of an example of an emergent property in the sense that you have the higher-level property, which is not linked to the lower level in any kind of direct way. What emerges from Orel's explorations of what he would call truth is a sense that we, or more to the point, our scientists, need a different way of looking at the world, which might also include different tools for looking. Having examined the long history of our notion of beauty, the book then turns to the subjects of complexity, the unexpected, and the extra-rational. Extra-rational, I should say, in the sense of a thing that can't be deduced to simplicities, not the kind of thing you get from Ouija boards. For one example of nature that can't be boiled down to formulae, we look at the field of meteorology. Now, while this next bit may sound tangential, because it is, any opportunity to mention one of Nicolas Cage's great performances, as opposed to his many other performances, is an opportunity that must be taken. In the desperately underrated movie, The Weatherman, there's a typical Nick Cage losing his shit moment. And this time, it's because the person who gives him the long-term weather predictions can't narrow it down to less than a 24-degree range. 24 degrees. It could be 14. It could be 38. That's what we're talking about. And because he has to go on TV and explain that to viewers, this is how he reacts. In fairness, though, that range for long-term forecast can be accurate, considering the variables that go into meteorological prediction. And that's because while the basic elements of meteorology, specifically the water molecule, are mathematically masterable, the interactions between these elements generates a complexity that cannot be fully modeled. This is one reason a number of outstanding mathematical minds, like John von Neumann, went into meteorology. It was a meeting ground between the potential complexities that theory could handle and the excess of complexities that reality provided. But as meteorology is always showing us, no matter how simple the constituents, there is no way to fully comprehend the possible outcomes. This is the same lesson taught to us by the game of life. And if you're thinking of more recent subjects, well, there's the stock market crash, which provides a far more vivid example of the same principle. At the risk of putting too fine a point on it, the scientific aesthetic fails when life, with all its unpredictability, comes into the equation. Let us not forget that, after all, Newton died a virgin. Having said that about Newton and the bit before, it was a description by Orel of something else entirely that, for me, conveyed the essence of the tension between theory and practice, beauty and truth. It came from a description of the way art works, and it describes a meeting of art and science that was always there. It isn't geometry that makes a painting beautiful. It is the tension between the geometry and what swims beneath. Beauty is itself an emergent phenomenon which eludes tidy rationalization. So, where to next? Well, we still have the old system, and it's going strong. It's Pythagorean, hierarchical, male-dominated, and not incidentally, tied directly to military exploits throughout time, and especially forcefully in the last century. It favors detachment, mathematical reasoning, formality, and abstraction. What Truth or Beauty proposes is a way of looking at the world that does not presume hierarchy, that eschews dreams of perfection, that admits what the economist Julie Nelson identifies as connectedness, verbal reasoning, informality, and concern with concrete detail, all of which have been traditionally considered 
feminine virtues and therefore within the scientific community regarded as inferior. If science is to take up its purported task of looking at the world instead of looking at itself, it must drop its pretenses of slaying God only to replace it with other similarly shaped idols. There is pathos and bathos that underlies this last point. And before I turn to the close of this review, I want to give it some space to express itself. In Truth or Beauty, Orell quotes Robert Wesson, a political scientist, who observes an element of self-hate in the now widespread practice of modeling living things as though they were machines. This, incidentally, is proof that at least one intelligent thought has emerged from the field of political science. Although the book does not extend Wesson's point about self-hatred to the specific person of Richard Dawkins, who is rather tartly described in the book as a science communicator, I will take this opportunity to do so myself. Because in reading the writings of Richard Dawkins and the physicist Lawrence Krauss on the absolute dead certainty that there is no way, no how a god in the universe, I think they make a mistake that is all too often ascribed to the scientist, the so-called traitor in the hard currency of fact. The mistake of these anti-god botherers is a lack of empathy with the confusion that is inherent to being human. For many, God is not a figure on a chair who sets the rules, or controls life from afar, or who created the first subatomic matter, or antimatter, that sparked the Big Bang. For many, and I neither include nor exclude myself from this group, God is merely a gap in understanding, an aspect of the darkness, a part of the inexplicability that exists in so many things. What a sad world we would live in if we knew everything. What a sad world it would be if we thought, as Dawkins and Krauss and their ilk often seem to suggest, that we could know everything, or already do. Part of being human is not knowing. It's looking for answers, and I'd say it's a form of self-hatred to suggest that uncertainty is not part of our condition. Uncertainty vexes these scientists, so they try to slay it. But in their odyssey to do so, they look foolish. And in their anger at those who, to their mind, don't get it, they seem juvenile. What truth or beauty showed is that uncertainty, like complexity, cannot be reduced. Of course, Heisenberg said that quite a while ago, but that's for another time. The pleasure of reading this book can be summed up in one word, complexity. Or two, complexity and diversity. And probably we can throw in emergence, because with the diversity and complexity of the arguments within, new ones are born in the mind of the reader. Although, and it's sad to say the word although, but there you have it, although David Orrell is a scientist who has earned his bona fides in the realms of physics, particle accelerators, and meteorology, his work indicates that he's also a fully formed human being, interested in the worlds beyond the lab. The book contains equal parts philosophy, economics, arts, politics, and more. This is a work in touch with its subject, the entire world. And it is principally for this reason that it makes for worthwhile reading. Thanks for listening. Next up on Burning Books will be a review of the first novel by the Belgian ingenue. Surely there's only one, Amélie Notham. That novel is Hygiene and the Assassin. Burning Books is part of the Latopia network of podcasts, and you can hear back episodes, subscribe, and reach me there via the email the show button all by going to litopia.com, spelled the way it sounds, and following the links to Burning Books. I also enjoy getting your tweets about shows, previous, upcoming, nasty and nice. I'm at Burning Books Pod. My thanks to David Orrell. Yeah, thanks very much. To Hakan Ozgan for the music. There are several ways to thank someone. So, 
Let's start with the easiest. Teşekkürler. Peter Cox, executive producer of the show. What do you call a mobile home? Like a trailer? Like, yeah, yeah, I guess. Okay, yeah, trailer. I call them caravans. And as always, go Jays. Hello, my name is Bert Calls. I'm a dramatist who works mostly for the radio. And I was the head writer on the BBC's unique project to dramatise all of the Sherlock Holmes stories by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. The first time it's ever been done in any medium. And you're listening to Radio Litopia. Radio Litopia.